But he ran that race, beating his own personal best by two seconds. He won the gold medal, and in fact, he even set the world record for the 400-meter dash that day that stood for 12 years beyond. After winning that race, Eric Liddell said this, quote, It has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I have been a young lad, I have had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris. And this race ends when God gives out the medals. End quote. In the New Testament, there are many metaphors that are used to give us a picture of what it means to live the Christian life. And no illustration, metaphor, or word picture, if you will, describes the Christian life so perfectly and so completely. And so there are many different types of ones used all throughout the Scriptures. For example, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 6.18 that we are sons and daughters, and, and God is a father to us, meaning that we are in the family of God. We've been born again. We're now adopted into God's holy family. And He disciplines us for our, our good as a, a loving father would. We're all now brothers and sisters in Christ. We have family responsibilities to live out to one another's together in the context of church life. Another picture is that of a disciple, which means a learner or a student. And we are to learn of Christ. We're to follow Him. And we're to be learning and growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another picture is that actually of a baby, inasmuch that we are to long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it we may grow in respect to salvation, as 1 Peter 2, 2 tells us. Another illustration is like that of a sheep, and we're to, to listen to the voice of the Good Shepherd, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He will care for us and nurture us and, and protect us and cause us to lie down in green pastures and lead us beside still waters. We're like a soldier enlisted for active duty. We're like a boxer who isn't just boxing in the air aimlessly. We're like living stones being built up in the household of faith, which rests on the chief cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Each of these different metaphors help us to understand what it means to follow after Jesus Christ and to live as a Christian. The text that we have before us is yet another metaphor to help us understand what it means to be a Christian. And it's a text that we need to be reminded of again and again. And that illustration that we have used in our text is that of a runner. It's that of someone who's competing in a race. And it's of someone who knows that they can't be complacent if they're going to actually compete. Because they know that they are in the great race of their lives. And what's at stake is greater than any fame or any fortune that comes from winning a gold medal in the Olympics. The Bible uses this metaphor of running repeatedly. In 1 Corinthians 9.24, it says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win, because we run for that which is imperishable. 
In Philippians 3.13, it says, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward on for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul says, I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And so it is this this image of a runner, this athlete, that I want us to look at because if you take on the name Christian, if you are born again and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in this race. You are an athlete. You are a spiritual athlete. And for you and I to live and grow as a Christian necessitates that we take this word of exhortation seriously. We must not only understand this passage, but we must also implement this passage. Now you need to know that these chapter breaks that we see here are not in the original autographs. And so when we arrive at chapter 12, it's just this buildup of the entire book of Hebrews from everything before it. And it sort of like builds and builds and builds like stacking blocks on one top of another. And if we would look back at at what comes before this when we get to this point, we could see back that as recently as chapter 10 and verses 19 through 25, that we're told that that we as Christians are to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, and that we must not let go. We must not abandon our confidence, but continue on in faith until our final reward. By the time we get to chapter 11, the great hall of faith, we have the definition of faith, an example, an example of what persevering faith looks like from the Old Testament. It's by faith, Noah, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Sarah, and the list goes on and on. But in other words, we see those that relied on God's promises Believing in what he says, even if they couldn't see how it was going to be fulfilled. Like I said a couple of weeks ago, faith isn't necessarily believing in God, it's believing God. It's taking him at his word. It's believing that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And this faith that is demonstrated again and again in chapter 11 shows us people who kept looking to the future and past their present circumstances. These are all people who have run the race. They trusted God in danger or distress, whether in tribulation or trial, whether in adversity or affliction. They are all those who have gone before us as our Old Testament heroes of the faith. And before we move on to chapter 12, I want to ask you this. Is your confidence in the promises of God such that you would be considered a candidate for the Great Hall of Faith in chapter 11. If God were to expand this list, knowing whatever situation you find yourself in this morning, whatever affliction, whatever distress, whatever trial that you're going through, would God add your name on the list of the great people of faith? Would God say to you, I see the distress that you're in. I know the trial you're enduring right now, but I see that you have set your eyes on me, you put your confidence in me, and you have your faith in me. Would God add you to that list? But then when we arrive at our text in chapter 12 and verse 1, we see this word, therefore. Remember, every time you see the word, therefore, 
You have to ask, what is it there for, right? It's used about a, a dozen or so, two dozen times in the book of Hebrews alone, meaning because everything that has come before this, therefore, chapter 11, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, The we, referring to all believers, and the great cloud of witnesses is all of those back in chapter 11. It's God's hall of fame, the great hall of faith. They are the ones who have completed their race. They have competed like world-class athletes, and it's as if they're sitting in the grandstands, and they're cheering us on. Not as if they're looking down from heaven and they see us, but they are actually bear witness to us. They have something more lovely to gaze upon than you and I, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But they're cheering us on by the witness of their lives. All of those who have gone before us bear witness of both the difficulty of the task as well as its worth. And they stand today as a testimony to you and I as an example of those whom we are to emulate. And they bear witness to you and me as to how to run this race, because you and I need examples. We need heroes of the faith. We need people to teach us and show us the way. And when we look back at all the people in these chapter 11 here, this great cloud of witnesses, what are they saying to us? They're saying that the life of faith is the life that wins. We ran it right through the hot spots. We ran through that lion's den. We ran right through those swords. We ran through the wars. We ran right through that persecution. We ran through crisis after crisis after crisis. And it is the life of faith that ultimately wins. And we are living witnesses to the fact that you can run the race with endurance and know that God will honor you in the end. Listen, do you have struggles in your family relationships? Abel had a brother who hated him to death. Do you feel like no one ever respects you? Noah lived in a, with a generation that mocked and ridiculed everything he did. Does all seem hopeless in your situation? Abraham was pa- uh, promised a nation, but he didn't even have a son. Each and every one of them are shouting to you and I as this great cloud of witnesses telling us that the life of faith is the only way to go in this life. They're telling you and I, put your trust in God, and God will see you through. They're shouting at us. You ever have times you feel weak? You ever have times when you feel lonely? You ever have times when you feel like you're sinful and you're nothing but a failure? Then look at all these heroes of the past who didn't give up, and they kept at it, and they ran through crisis after crisis, and God honored them, and He gave them the victory. So not only look at the great heroes of the past, but then it goes on in what we are to do in the presence. In the present time, it says this, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which easily entangles us. I remember uh, playing Little League Baseball when I was a kid, and uh, before you were to go up to bat, you were called being on deck. And you would stand to the side of the batter some 10 to 15 or 20 feet away, and you would take your bat and you would swing it a few times to sort of warm up. And uh, you would take this donut and put it on your bat to weigh it down and make it feel a little heavier than it really is. But before you'd actually go up to the plate to bat, you'd take that thing off and you'd throw it to the side because you couldn't get any power in your swing and your speed with all that weight on there. 
And that's the idea behind this laying aside every encumbrance. The word literally means bulk or mass. It's weight. You, you shed the weight. That's what an encumbrance is here. You get, every, you get rid of everything that holds you back. In other words, in order for you to run the race of faith, you don't just ask if this thing or that thing in your life is a sin. You don't just ask that question of what's wrong with it. You ask yourself this question. Does it help me run? Does it help me run to Jesus? Does it help me run this race of faith? Is it holding me back? Does it get in my way? When you're trying to be godlier, when you're trying to be more patient, is it keeping you from being more loving or more kind or more holy? Will it make you a great runner or will it hold you back? And so many people in today are, are looking for the lowest possible standard as to what it means to be a Christian. It's like driving around a cliff when there's no guardrail on the side, and they want to ride that white line of the edge, and they want to know if this or that is a sin, instead of hugging the white line farthest away from the edge and saying, does this help me pursue holiness and godliness and piety? Don't ask, is it a sin? But ask yourself, will this make me more godly? Does this help me walk with the Lord better? Is it going to make me holy? Is it going to make me kind? Is it going to make me loving? Does it hold me back from running as a Christian? And notice, it's, there is no exception clause there. Listen, look at the word. It is every encumbrance, not some, not most, not, it's every single encumbrance. There is nothing in your life that should not be scrutinized as to whether or not it helps you run. And it's not what you think your neighbor should get rid of. It's not what you think the other person on the other side of the pew should get rid of. This is what holds you back. What You have to run your own race. You can't run someone else's race. What is holding you back from following Jesus Christ? It says, get rid of it. And it goes on, it says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Again, the picture is here of a runner and someone who comes to the starting line and they're wearing this long robe. And if he doesn't gather that robe up and tie it up, it's inevitable that he's going to get tripped up. You either tuck it into your belt, you take it off and cast it off to the side. In fact, most Greek athletes in the first century, they ran completely naked. So they wouldn't be enhambered by anything that, uh, that would restrict them. They got rid of it. But you got rid of that stuff that will cause you to trip and fall. And worse than being slowed down by an encumbrance is to be tripped up by sin. Now, what sin is this talking about? I want you to know I'm on the opposite side of the fence of a lot of commentators. And so if you're joining with them, I'm okay with that. Okay? Because it is in the singular. And so some commentators say it is the sin is the sin of unbelief. Because all sin is rooted in unbelief. And because we've been talking about faith all through chapter 11 there, it has to be the failure to trust God in difficult times. That's what the sin is. But we could also easily say that all sin is rooted in pride. 
But I don't think the text is so clear that we need to pinpoint the very exact sin that the author of Hebrews is talking about, but we need to set aside all sin. Because later on in verse 4, the writer of Hebrews uh, will go on to say that you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. So I don't think that we need to specifically say which sin it is that's going to hinder you as running as a Christian. Because guess what? There's a litany of them that will hinder you from running that will do the trick. Pride, lust, envy, greed, gross gossip, grumbling, selfishness, anger. All of them keep you from running the race effectively. And if we're all real honest here with each other this morning, these are some sins that easily entangle us. I don't know about you, but you roll the dice on any given day, and I'm battling any one of those. This is the picture, is that of something that's so easily encompassing or easily besetting. Besetting means uh, constantly present. It's persistently attacking. It's harassing or surrounding or attacking from all sides. There's like a dozen words to help describe this word. One commentator, he put it like this. He said this, this sin... It's like a ring of wild beasts in the jungle that encircle the campfire at night, each ready to pounce on a careless victim. Thomas Watson, he sort of agreed with me, so I'll at least claim him. You know, I'm going against Spurgeon and some other guys, but Thomas Watson said that it is not a specific sin when he said this. He said, quote, A man cannot run a race with a heavy burden on his back. An immoral person cannot run the race of holiness. A proud man cannot run the race of humility. A self-willed man cannot run the race of obedience. Oh, Christian, unburden your soul of sin. Throw off its rate. Wait if you intend to lay hold of that crown. John Engel James, he was a nonconformist pastor in Britain. He wrote this of Hebrews 12 in the late 1700s. But it is so applicable here today, 300 years later. He said this, quote, Besetting sins are powerful hindrances to Christian progress. Satan knows very well in every case this is, and he skillfully adapts his temptations to it. He's an expert angler. He never chooses his bait or throws his bait at random. Independently of him, however, the very tendency of the heart is in that direction. That one sin, whatever it is, while indulged, will hold you back. You cannot make progress in holiness until it is mortified. Even its partial indulgence, though it may be considerably weakened, will hinder you. Study then your situation, your circumstances. You cannot be ignorant which temptation and sin you are most liable to succumb to. You must know in what way you have most frequently wounded your conscience and occasioned yourself to shame and sorrow. Is it an unsanctified temper? Is it an impure imagination? Is it a proud heart? Is it a vain mind? Is it a taste for worldly company? Is it a proneness to envy and jealousy? Is it a love of money? Is it a tendency to exaggerate in speech? Is it a fondness for pleasure? It is, a, is it a disposition to censorious and backbiting? Study yourselves. Examine your own heart. You must find out this matter, and it requires no great pains in order to know it. 
because it floats onto the surface of the heart and it does not need to be hidden in its depths. There then, there is your danger. As long as that one sin, be it whatever it may be, is indulged, you cannot advance in the Christian life. Other sins are like unnecessary clothing to the eraser. Besetting sins are like a ball and chain around your ankle. Direct your attention more fixedly, your aim more constantly, to the destruction of besetting sins. You know what they are. Whether it's lust of the flesh, lust of the minds, bad tempers towards man, or sinful dispositions toward gods, or violations of piety, let us then be distinguished by a great mortification of besetting sins, which more than anything else, they distress us, they disgrace us, and they will hinder us in our progress heavenward. Oh, dear child of the King, Father's beloved, what encumbers you this morning? Spiritually speaking, what is hampering you from running as a champion? What seems to trip you up and seems to surround you on every side? Romans 8.13 says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us and pleads with us to lay aside every encumbrance in the sin. But then here's the whole point of this passage. And for the book of Hebrews, for that matter, it says this, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. If we would walk through the book of Hebrews, what we would find is this, that the Christian life is one of activity and pursuit. There is no such thing as a spiritual couch potato. The free grace movement that says, let go and let God, and you can do whatever you want, when you want, because grace is going to cover it, and you don't have to do anything. Listen, it's a lie. You just have to think right. You don't have to live right. That is a lie from Satan. Paul destroyed that argument in Romans 6 when he asked, Should we sin so grace may abound? May it never be. Because all through the New Testament, we are called to endure, to persevere, to fight, to discipline yourself. Be alert. Be strengthened. Don't drift. Don't neglect. Don't be sluggish. Don't take your eternal security for granted. Fight the fight of faith based on Christ's spectacular death and His resurrection. Show your, show your faith the way the saints of Hebrews 11 did. Not by coasting through life. Not by having this casual relationship with God. But by continuing reproach for Christ as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. So the main point of this text boils down to this one present tense imperative, and that is this, run! Run! I've got this little card right by my desk, and it's by Thomas Brooks, and it says, Christ must be supreme. And I think I'm going to change it out, and I think I'm going to put run. Run! Run and keep running! Everything else supports this. Run the race before you! Run, don't stroll, don't meander, don't wander about aimlessly, don't loiter. Run as if you have a race to finish and the finish line and everything is hanging on it. 
Pursue God with all your strength, all of your might. Seek him daily. Wrestle with him like Jacob in the wilderness. And don't let go of him until he blesses you. Throw off the encumbrances and the sin and run for your life. It's not a quick sprint. It's a marathon. And it's just not a marathon. It's a marathon with hurdles. And it's not just a marathon with hurdles. It's a marathon with hurdles and with wild animals trying to devour you. That's why when it says that we must run with endurance, this is the word in the Greek literally means to bear up under. This is not just a, a grim resignation or just a grin and bear it attitude, but this is a triumphant facing of difficult circumstances, knowing that even out of evil, our Heavenly Father promises us good. This is Romans 8.28 stuff that says, And we know, we know this, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and for those who are called according to His purposes. And so, with endurance is not a passive acceptance, but it is a strong fortitude in the face of opposition and difficulty. It's the opposite of being despondent. But it describes the spirit which bear things, not simply with resignation, but with a blazing hope. In other words, if something happens in your life that is hard, that is painful, that is frustrating, that's disappointing, by grace, your faith looks to Jesus Christ and His power. You look to His sufficiency. You look to His fellowship. You look to His wisdom and His love. And you don't give in to bitterness and resentment and complaining. And then your faith, it endures. It perseveres, enabling you to run with a steady determination to keep going regardless of the temptation to slow down or give up. You must run. It says this situation is not really fun. It's not pleasurable to go through. But it says, my God will get me through. He will hold me fast. He has me in the palm of his hand. It's knowing Romans 8.28, but it's also knowing Romans 8.35 that says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a pretty bad scenario if you haven't weighed in on that. You're like a sheep to be slaughtered. But it goes on in verse 37. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer in Him who loves us. Jesus Christ will get you through whatever situation you find yourself in today. He will get you through. It's saying from 1 Timothy 1.12, with Paul, it says, For this reason, reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day. You must run, and you must run with endurance. The Cap City Marathon was just yesterday. And I remember running it about seven or eight years ago. And as I got to about mile six or seven, I remember this tinges of pain started to form in my different places in my body. First, it might have been my knee. And later, mile nine, just one toe randomly. Then my shoulders are getting tight and tense. 
And I would just kind of keep running, and then it would seem like one pain would go away, and another pain would pop up somewhere else, and I just kept running. And I was making adjustments in my stride and my pace, and you sit there and you're running, and you're thinking, am I going to make it? You keep asking yourself this question. But as I was running, there's all kinds of people on the sidelines, people I've never known or never met, and they're all cheering me on. And they, they're like this great cloud of witnesses that we have here. And they're saying, you can do it. You've got this with Christ. And so I just kept running until I rounded the corner of the finish line. And, and thank God it was downhill because 300 yards prior to getting to that point was uphill. And my legs were on fire. And, and this is a, this is, there's this, uh, I kept running, knowing that at the end I would get this medal and I'd be able to uh, put this 13.1 sticker on my car as a badge of honor if I wanted to keep going. And what kept me going was also this pace setter. This is somebody who's got this little sign on a four-foot-tall stick, and they're running with this thing. And you might, if you ran a seven-minute mile, there'd be a guy running with a sign that said seven minutes on it, and you followed him. And if you ran a 10-minute mile, there was a guy with a sign that said 10 minutes on it, and so forth and so on. But you followed that guy so that you would finish the course. You kept your eyes on him. And that's what the writer of Hebrew is exhorting us to do, to which we won't get much farther than this this morning. But verse 2 gives us the answer as to how we can run the race of endurance. It says in verse 2, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're to look to Jesus Christ because no one has endured like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ went all the way to Calvary in the face of opposition, in the face of hostility, in the face of being deserted and left alone by others. He pressed on in running the race for God. His eye was on the Father. And in the same way, the writer of Hebrews is calling us to place our eyes on Jesus Christ. Our gaze is not to be looking at the other runners. Our gaze isn't to be looking down at our feet. We're not to be navel-gazing all the time. Our gaze isn't to be captivated by the things this world has to offer. But our eyes are to be riveted on our champion. There was a story of a farmer one time. And he was going to teach his son how to plow a field. And for the very first time with a team of horses. and, And the dad told his son... He said, son, let me tell you, this is what you do. You find something in that field in front of you, and you keep your eyes on it, and as you plow, you're always going to have a straight furrow. And so the son began to plow. About an hour later, the dad came back from inside the house, and he came out, and the entire field had crooked furrows all through it. And he looked at his son. He said, son, What in the world happened? I told you, keep your eyes on something in the next field and plow towards it. And the son said, Dad, I did. But that cow kept moving. If your eyes, is your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ? Or are you looking at the things in this world that are just moving around? Are you enamored more with the things of this world? Or is Jesus Christ captivate your heart? We're called to fix our eyes on Him. And you may see your sin ever present before you. 
surrounding it, as it were, seemingly encompassing you. But for every glance at your sin, for every hero of faith that you look at in chapter 11, you take ten glances at the Lord Jesus Christ. Only He ran the race perfectly. Only He endured to the end. Only He looked beyond the pain of this life, and He had looked at what awaited Him in the joy of His Father. I want to close with this poem, which I don't do often, but I think it's very applicable to what we've looked at today, and it's called, I See Jesus. It says this, I don't look back, God knows the fruitless efforts, the wasted hours and the sinning, the regrets. I leave them all with Him who blots the record and mercifully forgives and then forgets. I don't look forward, God sees all the future, the road that short or long will lead me home, and He will face me with its every trial and bear for me the burdens that may come. I don't look around me, then would fears assail me, so wild the tumult of the earth's restless seas, so dark the world, so filled with woe and evil, so vain the hope of comfort or of ease. I don't look in, for then I am most wretched. Myself has not on which to stay my trust. Nothing I see save failures and shortcomings and weak endeavors crumbling into dust. But I look up into the face of Jesus, for there my heart can rest. My fears are stilled, and there is joy and love and light for darkness. And there is perfect peace and every hope fulfilled. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And let us fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that it might encourage us and strengthen us to be diligent, to run the race which you have set before us. That we wouldn't do it in our own strength, but we would depend upon your grace. Father, help us today to set aside the sin which so easily entangles us. And help us to run as if we are to win. We pray these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.